Well, good morning, happy Mother's Day, and as promised today, we are actually wrapping up this series that we have been in now for five weeks titled Hot Button. And as the name of this series would suggest, we've been tackling and speaking to some of the most hot button topics and questions circulating around in our society today. Topics like sex before marriage, dating in the 21st century, homosexuality, conflict resolution, you know, all pretty lighthearted stuff. Topics that are so often spoken about and addressed behind closed doors, but rarely spoken about publicly, particularly in a place like this, a a church. So if you haven't been here for every week of this series, I'd invite, I'd challenge you to go back and catch yourself up at grumlaw.com slash messages, or as always, you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. In particular, it's really important that you go back and catch that first week because it provides a foundation for basically everything else that we have been talking about in this series. Now, something that I find to be absolutely amazing is that the Almighty God, our Creator, he, he cares so much about us and He loves us so much that He actually tries to steer us away from that which is ultimately going to cause us and those around us harm and towards that which will ultimately be better for us. Uh, perhaps you've never heard this before, but God. He's for you. God has your best interest in mind. But unfortunately, so many of us, and maybe this is what's floating around in your head this morning, uh, we've been led to believe that God is some sort of a control freak, that that he just creates rules for the sake of rules to constrain us, to hold us back. He he just doesn't want us having any fun. But, But that is so far from the case. God, being so incredibly for you, He actively tries to save us from that future regret, remorse, heartache. Now, one of the primary ways that he goes about trying to accomplish this is is through his word, this thing that we would traditionally refer to as the Bible. It's this manual for life that unfortunately, both Christians and non-Christians alike, we we often just kind of chuck it to the side because we think we know better. Or or we think we can somehow kind of cheat the system, even though our creator is definitely looking down at us going, don't you think that I, who created you, probably knows what's best for you? So, So God, being so incredibly for you that he sent his one and his only son to die for you, he's trying to protect us from all of that, regret, remorse, heartache. To, to, to stop being so nearsighted. And, and, and again, as we've covered ad nauseum in this series, the, the order of how God went about this is so, so important. After proving himself trustworthy to you by giving his one and only son to all of us, God now asks you to trust him in return. So, so this isn't some blind trust. He proved himself trustworthy to you when he died for you. He showed how much he loved you when he gave himself for your sin problem. And now he asks, hey, well, will you trust me in return? So with all of that as the backdrop and the foundation, let's head into the final part of this series. And as we do, I want to draw our attention all the way back to the beginning, both to the beginning of Scripture as well as literally the beginning of time, at least for us human beings. Uh, For those of you that maybe aren't as familiar with this book that we call the Bible, it's actually a collection of 66 smaller books collected and put together to form the Bible. And the very first book in the Bible is titled Genesis. 
And one of the events that Genesis captures in great detail is, is the story of creation. God creating the world and everything in it. Now, a quick sidebar here. Some of you who are listening right now, you probably think that the story of creation as documented in Genesis is kind of like a complete pile of crap. It's nothing more than a fairy tale. And so, important, I'm not telling you that you have to believe this. I'm just informing you that this is what we, as Jesus followers, as Christians, adhere to and believe. Fair enough? So, so when God goes about creating things like the sun and the stars and the oceans and mountains and trees and animals, over and over and over again, he kind of takes a step back and he says, this is good. It's like this moment where he's like, dang, this is coming together quite nicely. Then, for his grand finale, he has, he has one more thing he's going to create, but it's actually less of a thing and more of a being, something that's going to actually reflect his very image. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, So God created human beings, you and I, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created us. He created you and I in his image. He, he literally put something divine in each of us. And after creating people, human beings, you and I, he takes a step back and he says, this is very good. And the reason that there's this differentiation between human beings and everything else that he created is because of that very profound detail. We have been created in the image of God. Human beings reflect God Almighty. We reflect and bear the image of our creator. You are an image bearer to God. You, unlike all other creation, you have something divine inside of you. You reflect God's nature and character to the rest of creation through attributes like compassion and goodness and justice and mercy, through our authority over creation, and through relationship with one another as well as true relationship with God himself. No other creation has that opportunity. That this is unique to humans, God's divine creation. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Why is this so important? It's because from the very beginning, God set human beings apart. From day one, moment one, God declared and established an unparalleled value on human life. There is nothing that God cares more about and loves more than you. He established this in the very beginning, and then he doubles down on this when he gave us his son. See, when we rebelled against God by sinning, and every single one of us, whether you've come to grips with this or not, are guilty of this, we fractured our relationship with God. And at that point, as far as it was concerned between human beings and our creator, it should have been over. But God, again, because he places such tremendous value on you, because he loves and cares about you so much, he chose to get involved. Nothing that we did compelled him to do this. It was entirely his decision because he loves his image bearer so much. And he got involved in a way that none of us could have possibly predicted. Because of the immense value that he places on human life, 
But because we are all uniquely different from all other creation, because he loves you so much, he, he offered his one and his only son as the final, the once and for all solution to our sin problem. And, and he did this not to pay us back, but to win us back. Think, think about that. God Almighty, God sent Jesus to win us back. He did this because of the unparalleled value that he places on human life, all human life. And as we wrap up this series today, but admittedly just kind of begin to open up this conversation amongst this body of Jesus followers, I feel led to speak to and allow the word of God to infiltrate the direction of our conversation surrounding two topics in particular that are unmistakably intertwined, abortion and racism. And the reason that I know that God has led me to speak on these two topics in conjunction with one another is because of what God established in the beginning and that he doubled down on when he gave us Jesus. God declared and established an unparalleled value on human life, on all human life, on unborn life, on fresh out of the womb life, on 20-year-old life, on 90-year-old life, on black life, on white life, on brown life, on all human life. Now, if you're sitting here today and you don't call yourself a Jesus follower, you're just kind of exploring or someone frankly forced you to be here this morning, every thought, every idea, every truth that will flow from my mouth here on out is rooted back to this idea. And that's important for you to understand because if you find yourself disagreeing with me this morning, chances are it'll be because you don't totally subscribe to this foundational thought. And that's okay. I'm not saying that you have to believe this stuff. You just kind of get to be here for the ride this morning. You're listening in on what Christians believe, or at least ought to believe. However, if you're sitting here today and, and you do call yourself a Jesus follower, that this isn't optional. This is foundational. It, it, it is central to what it means to follow Jesus. See, if you begin to look at human life flippantly, you're disregarding one of the foundational truths of Christianity. It becomes a house of cards. I mean, you pluck this out and the whole foundation falls apart until you are inevitably left with something that in no way reflects what Jesus set in motion. It's something, but it definitely isn't Christianity. See, both abortion and racism are an affront to God and his glorious work in creation. Both make a mockery of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. Jesus died just as much for the unborn child as he did for you. Jesus died just as much for our brown or black neighbor as he did for you. C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. He says, when Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only person in the world. That goes for the unborn child, the child that is an hour old, the adult that is 50 years old, the white woman, the black man, and every other human being who has ever been conceived. So with God, not me, having established all of that, and let me just kind of give you a heads up, I'm not going to completely unpack both of these issues, turn over every rock here over the next like 15 minutes. It's certainly just the beginning of this conversation. 
But, but I'm going to present much of what I have been hearing over this last year in particular regarding these two issues. Yes, from society, but actually primarily from people within the local church. And, and, and we'll look at how scripture, how God's word would tell us to respond. And, and kind of a quick word of warning as we dive into this. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait that by establishing a firm stance on these issues... You're aligning yourself with a particular political party. These are two topics in particular that have been grossly politicized. And for many of us, that fact alone has paralyzed us and given us the permission to sit idly by while disgusting atrocities become increasingly commonplace and oftentimes the very people who should be on the front lines advocating for the marginalized and speaking truth and love, Jesus followers, we have remained apathetically silent. So, Jesus followers, let's stop taking the bait and no longer be shamed or scared into apathy. We must remember who goes before us. And our God is far greater and more powerful than any political party. See, political parties, they come and go. I mean, just take a peek into the history books. None of them, none of them last forever. But our God, well, he is still very much on his throne. His truth, his word always prevail. So let's begin by taking a look at abortion, arguments, uh, sentiments that I often hear from people's mouths. First one being, life begins at birth. We've all heard this. Many of you probably listening right now, you subscribe to this. But you have to ask the question when looking at this statement, says who? Certainly not God, not our creator. Now again, if you're not a Jesus follower, you can kind of believe what you want to believe. But God, our creator, and yes, the creator of human beings. So maybe we ought to consider what he shares on the subject. He says otherwise. That there's many occasions where his word speaks directly to this. I think perhaps the most notable example is in the book of Psalms, specifically the 139th chapter, where it says this. It says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. I love this next statement. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Here and throughout scripture, God, the creator, he establishes the unborn as its own person. A unique human being created in the image of God Almighty. But yet, every day, more than 3,000 human beings are aborted with the blessing of the state. Every single one of those babies is made in the image of God and possesses a soul and is loved by him. That This passage and others clearly establish this. This is not a debatable issue. The biblical clarity on abortion is overwhelming. Now, scientifically speaking, let's just look at that. There's no difference in the nature of a baby five seconds before birth and five seconds after it is a preposterous and, frankly, a lazy argument. The only difference is location, which is an arbitrary foundation for personhood that you would never use in any other scenario. 
It, it would be like me saying you're less of a person while recovering, for instance, from COVID in a hospital bed with all sorts of medical devices hooked up to you than you were otherwise healthy sleeping in your own bed at home. Location does not establish a foundation for personhood. But, we often hear, but a woman should be able to do what she wants with her own body. As just mentioned, it's a fairly lazy argument that the birthing canal determines life. Christian philosopher Thaddeus Williams, he puts it this way. From the moment of conception, that baby has its own DNA, its own unique genetic code, a unique heart, circulatory system, brain, and more. If you're saying it's a part of her body, does that mean that she herself has two brains, two hearts, and four arms and legs? Of course not. The baby is a separate person even as it is intimately attached to its mother's body. As just mentioned, Scripture clearly establishes the unborn as its own person. And our rights, let's just think about it this way, to our bodies, that they're relative as far as the law is concerned. For instance, prostitution is illegal in most states. You cannot pour illicit drugs into your body as you see fit according to the law. Our rights to our bodies are relative, stopping precisely when they begin to affect others such as the unborn. In church, those of you who are sitting here listening right now and you call yourself a Jesus follower, we need to get a whole lot better at loving and caring for the vulnerable, the oppressed, namely here, children. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like sexual sin is going anywhere this side of heaven. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to respond and care for the marginalized, the vulnerable, in particular children. If you call yourself a Jesus follower, yes, you ought to be pro-life, but you should also be proactive in caring and loving for orphans, foster children, single mothers. James, being the very brother of Jesus, I mean, he makes a startlingly blunt statement at the end of the first chapter of his letter. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And that's how the entire thought concludes, seriously. I mean, that's it. He's just like off to the next chapter. There is no, okay, and like what else you got? He's like, no, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. There's a jarring statistic That if every church in America just had one family, one couple, one person that just adopted one child, if there was one adopted child represented in every church in America, there literally would not be a single orphan in America. Church, that's pretty pitiful on how we're responding to this call. Now, Now, I will be the first to admit that this is deeply personal to me because of my wife and I's journey with adoption and foster care, but I feel led to share this. My wife and I did not hear a voice from God telling us to get involved in this. No, we just took the words of Scripture seriously. Our prayer as Jesus followers should not be, should I get involved? No, because Scripture clearly commands it. It should be, God, I'm running with the assumption that you want me to do this, and we're just going to kind of head in that direction unless you explicitly tell us otherwise. Abortion, the reason that I'm bringing this up, would frankly be much less of a conversation if Jesus' followers just got better or became more obedient in this particular area, in caring for orphans, in caring for widows, in caring for single mothers. 
And so if this has been something that's ringing in your head, I would challenge you, take that step, at least begin this conversation down that line of adoption or foster care. My wife and I worked with an incredible organization and continue to work with a great organization that actually has several locations. We worked at the one out of Flint. It's called Ennis Center for Children, E-N-N-I-S. Uh, make that phone call, get the ball rolling, at least just say, okay, maybe God, is this a step that you want us to take? Church, it, it was how Jesus' followers responded to the practice of infanticide specifically that largely grabbed the attention of the first century world, that there was this terrible pr- process where, where parents, either because the kid has a, had a physical deformity, maybe they were wanting a male and they got a female, maybe they just couldn't afford to raise the child, where would, they would take a child outside of the city walls and expose the child. That's the language they would use. And they would literally just leave the child and allow nature to do what, what nature wanted to do with the child. And Jesus' followers were responding to very clear imperatives like this. They started going outside the city walls, scooping up these children, and raising them as their own. And the first century world is looking at this going, what in the world is wrong with these people? How can they afford to do this? Why would they, why would they put their own families in jeopardy, financially speaking, and do this? Our world, largely speaking, that they're not asking that question as much of Jesus' followers in the 21st century. Shouldn't we make an exception for cases of genetic disabilities or or cases of rape and incest? First, let's address that first thing, that the genetic disabilities. You want to know who has never tried to make this argument? Parents and families with loved ones that have physical or mental disabilities. We have many, many families who are actually a part of this faith community who would be angered, hurt, and offended by this line of logic. I I researched my tail off preparing for this message, and literally, I could not find a single organization of disabled people in the world that is in favor of elective abortions of those who have disabilities. Second, what this implies is that these individuals are less likely to experience happiness. They're more likely to experience hardship. It it makes this false correlation between genetic deformities and unhappiness. That There was a study recently done in Baltimore, and it says no study has found that handicapped persons are more likely than non-handicapped persons to want to die or commit suicide. This report, which came out in Baltimore, said, in fact, of the 200 consecutive suicides in Baltimore last year, none had been committed by people with congenital deformities. If you're trying to say that we should be able to abort those who we know in advance are most likely to be unhappy, to experience hardship, then you should not start with people with genetic disabilities. They're actually on the happy end of the scale. And who are we, even if you're the parent to determine whether another life isn't worth living. Now, the, the conversation and that always goes here when speaking of abortion, of rape and incest. First, I want to acknowledge, I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine the pain involved with this. It's unfathomable, it's unspeakable. I'm not going to pretend like I know what that's like. But, but in thinking about the preborn, we have to keep perspective. These kinds of tragic And heartbreaking cases, they make up less than 1% of all abortions. If we argue that abortion is moral in in these cases, are we then agreeing that the other 99% of abortions are wrong? No, that's never the case. It's always 
using the exception to justify the rule, which is a faulty way about going, arguing things. Don't get me off on that. But the bigger point here is that a person is not defined by the circumstances that brought them into the world. We have to stay focused on the central question. Is the pre-born baby a person? And if they are, and I don't want this to come across as insensitive, how they became a person is irrelevant. That that little person in the womb, even if they were conceived among the most heinous and perverted circumstances, that that little speck initially no bigger than a period at the end of a sentence has more value than all the planets and the stars and the vast cosmos. God lovingly made them. Jesus died for them. And they have an eternal future. Now listen, I know when we have conversations surrounding abortion that there are inevitably people who are watching right now and and this is such a tender conversation. This is such a guilt-ridden conversation because I know of many people in this church who have gone through with abortions, who have contemplated abortion, and I want you to hear this loud and clear. The grace of Jesus is sufficient. It, It can cover even that. God wants to meet you in that pain. He wants to meet you in that guilt. He does not want you carrying that weight around for the rest of your life. We are told that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, the old is gone, the new is here, and yes, the grace of Jesus can cover even that. And so with that in mind, I I just want to pray for those individuals right now, those of you who are watching right now, who are really, really wrestling with this, wrestling with the guilt of prior decisions. Father, um, I pray right now for for those families, for the couples, for the individuals who have perhaps had abortions in the past, who have contemplated abortion, and I I just pray for healing this morning, Father. I, I pray that they would see that you are a God who is rich in mercy, not judgment. And we come to your throne and we seek repentance and we ask forgiveness. You are so quick to extend that. And again, your grace can cover even that. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't just look in from the outside. No, you meet us in the messy middle. You provide that peace that really does surpass all understanding. So I pray that this wouldn't be a conversation that drives people farther away from you. No, 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 but it drives them closer to you. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name we pray, amen. Now, we recognize that if if you're walking through this, if you're dealing with the guilt of this, a a prayer in all likelihood isn't just going to fix it. Uh, And we as a church, we think we have some pretty incredible resources for you to take advantage of. You can go to grumlaw.com slash care to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, We have groups that are dealing specifically with grief. We have counseling services. Uh, Please don't take another day and continue to walk through this alone. Uh, There are people that want to walk alongside you in this journey and help you with this. So please, 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 again, head to grumlaw.com slash care. Now we're going to shift the conversation a little bit more to the conversation around race and specifically racism. Uh, One of the things that I so frequently hear uh, is stop blaming me slavery was not my idea. Now, now listen, I don't subscribe to the theory that you ought to be held guilty for the sins of others. And in fact, Scripture teaches the complete opposite of that as well. Unfortunately, though, this is often a harsh reality. But in church, this isn't really debatable. It's just true. And frankly, you come across as insensitive at best when you try to argue otherwise. 
we have all undeniably benefited by the atrocities committed against our black and brown brothers and sisters. So, so while you might not personally be to blame, that there are privileges and benefits afforded to you that are a direct result of blatant racism that has occurred in our country. Just one of many, many examples. In the 1940s, there was a GI Bill that was passed to help, amongst other things, help veterans receive mortgages. Of the 67,000 mortgages issued by the U.S. government, less than 100 of those were given to people of color. Laws like these have shaped our society. That that specific bill shaped who lives where, that the privileges given to certain groups of people, that there are countless stereotypes bestowed on people of color that are rarely, if ever, bestowed upon me. I don't have to prove that I'm a hard worker. I don't have to prove that I'm smart. These are common occurrences for our black brothers and sisters. Even though I personally did not implement these laws, these ideologies, I have benefited from them, and sitting back in apathy is not an appropriate or even a godly response. In Paul, in his early letter to the Christian church in Galatia, he commands us, share, share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. And then he goes on to make this blunt statement. He says, if you think you're too important to help someone, come on, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. We as followers of Jesus, we are called to lament, to carry each other's burdens and help the oppressed, help those who are being taken advantage of. Which, and this bleeds into something else that I so often hear, this isn't my battle to fight. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, sure, you can subscribe to that. But if you're a Jesus follower, you're just wrong. That this is precisely what we are being called, commanded to do in Galatians. Church, how sad is it that conversations surrounding this particular topic are so quickly dismissed by those in the church as being divisive? If it matters to my black and brown brothers and sisters, then it ought to matter to me. As Jesus followers, we are called to proclaim the dignity and the equality of all people. This has always been a distinctive of Christians throughout the generations since the very beginning. As already mentioned, how Christians responded to infanticide was what grabbed the attention of the ancient Mediterranean world. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. As Jesus followers, we are called to leverage the authority, leverage the privileges given to us for the benefit of others, and specifically the vulnerable, the oppressed. It's a bit strange, perplexing to me, that so many Jesus followers are so outspoken against abortion, but they're entirely apathetic about racism. What that really means is you're pro-birth, not pro-life. Throughout Scripture, justice extends beyond putting down the oppressor, but lifting up the oppressed. Silence in the face of injustice is regarded by God as complicity in that injustice. As Paul indicates in his letter to the Galatians, we are called to help each other. Leverage your authority for the benefit of those around you. But, but Shay, isn't all this being a little overblown? See, see, it's interesting that I only ever hear this sentiment from white people. And if I can be so bold, and admittedly, I'm lumping myself into this category because I've certainly done this before. What right, as a white individual who has likely never, and if you have, it's certainly the exception, not the rule, please stop making yourself into the victim. 
What right do you have to deny the experience of a fellow human being made in the likeness of God? That this is such an arrogant, such a belittling position to take. I mean, seriously, just think about you personally. Is there anything more frustrating in this world than to have another person tell you, either directly or insinuated, that what you have lived, what you have experienced didn't actually happen? Or, or that you should feel something differently than what you're actually feeling? Take, for example, uh, we as a church, and hopefully this isn't news to you, we, we've recently went through a merger where two churches became one. And, and through this merger, I'll just be honest, my character, my actions were attacked in ways that I have never experienced before in my life. The things being said about me that were literally just lies, completely made up. And I will admit, it was really, really difficult to just kind of sit idly by while all this was happening. It was even more maddening when people would tell me, and it happened frequently, that what I just experienced wasn't true. No, 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 Shay, what they really meant was this. No, no, Shay, they, they didn't actually say that. Here's what they, what they said. No, no, Shay, they, they didn't really mean it that way. Here's what, what actually went on. And I'm sitting there like, what? I was there. I, I stood in front of that person why they said these things, why they did these things. To deny a person's actual experiences is among the most hurtful of stances to take, particularly Again, if you're sitting here and you call yourself a Jesus follower, people who are called to be slow to speak, quick to listen, quick to extend compassion, bear each other's burdens. Now, now chances are, if, if you're feeling less than compassionate towards this conversation surrounding race happening in our society right now, or, or you feel like this is just being so overblown, that there's something very, very crucial missing in your life relationship. Relationships with individuals who look different than you. Very similar to what I spoke about two weeks ago, my perspective changed drastically on this issue, not because of a sermon, not because of a theology course, not because of a passage of scripture, not because of a podcast. It had everything to do with relationship. Please don't miss this. If you've been zoning out, bring it back in here for just a second. Proximity breeds empathy. Proximity breeds empathy. My guess is that 99.9% .9 of you watching right now, you would say, I'm not racist. But in our largely Caucasian, in our largely white church, there are probably far more people than I would like to admit who are completely apathetic to the hardships that our brothers and sisters of color have had to endure. And I'd venture to say that that apathy largely comes down to proximity. You likely have not entered into relationship with people who look differently than you. And I'm just speaking from personal experience, but once I became intentional about this, once I took this step, it became a lot more difficult to sit on the sidelines, to deny their experiences, to shrug my shoulders and say, eh, not my problem. It's through relationship and that proximity that breeds empathy that when a person of color is senselessly killed, I no longer react by saying, let's get all the facts. No, church, I mourn with those who mourn. I, you, we don't need all the facts to extend compassion or be empathetic towards an image bearer to God Almighty. And so to that, for, for, to our brothers and sisters of color, I just want to say again, I am sorry I am sorry for me personally being apathetic and therefore not being a part of the solution. 
I'm sorry for how largely silent the church has been on this issue, for not being proactive, that it took unspeakably heinous acts to get us to open our mouths. Again, I am so sorry. Does anybody know, some of you who grew up in church, you probably know the answer to this, what with the shortest verses in all of Scripture? It's John eleven thirty five. I'm, I'm going to hook you up here this morning. If you're like, man, I don't have any scripture memorized, you can memorize two words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, a lot of you who maybe grew up going to church, you know this verse, but you don't know the context around it, perhaps. The reason that Jesus wept is because one of his close friends, a guy by the name of Lazarus, had just died. And in particular, Jesus wept, if we look at the text, because those who were close to Lazarus were weeping. Jesus entered into this. He he mourned with those who mourned. Even though he knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, it did not stop him from entering into the emotion of those whom he cared deeply about. As Jesus followers, we should follow this lead. We're called to enter into the pain, to enter into the hurting, to mourn alongside those who mourn, and thus model what God through Christ did for each of us. Again, don't take the bait. The dividing line here isn't between conservatives and liberals. It's between those who recognize there's a problem and grieve it and those who don't. And some of Jesus' final words before departing this earth Recorded for us specifically in John 17, John being one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Jesus, he prays for us. I mean, think about that. Jesus had you and I in mind. He says this, he says, I pray that they will all, as in all of us, be one. Just as you and I, God the Father and Jesus are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be, they being Jesus' followers for all the generations that would follow, may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus goes out of his way to pray for our unity. And just in case you're wondering, that's not just a prayer for unity among those who look like each other, but all people who identify as Jesus' followers perhaps especially across those ethnic lines. Because it seems like Jesus knew that this would capture and demand the attention of our broken world. Listen, church, it's not lost on me that at Grumlaw Church right now, we're largely white. Dr. Martin Luther King used to say that the most segregated hour in America was between 11 and 12 on Sundays. One of my favorite preachers, J.D. Greer, he actually disputes that. He says, saying with all due respect to Dr. King, there's actually a more segregated hour between six and seven every night around the dinner table. See, God has certainly ignited a passion in me for this church to be more diverse, with more foster kids and adopted children running around, more black and brown and white and everything between, to look more like heaven. Church, this is undeniably biblical. To to be a church for all people, not just white people. See, see the gospel, Jesus is for everyone. And and we as a church, we've always said that we want to create environments where anyone and everyone feels comfortable walking through our doors. A safe place for anyone to explore their faith. 
But little did we realize, and it was so subtle, we were only creating environments for one kind of people. And we are sure to repeat the mistakes and the sins of the church in the past if we are not intentional about this. Because again, proximity breeds empathy. If black and brown and white are serving alongside each other, they're worshiping alongside each other in groups together, discipling each other, sharing meals together, can you even imagine Y'all, there's a reason Jesus said this whole local church thing was the hope of the world. Few things testify more to the power of the gospel than the world sees a bunch of people from different backgrounds, different races, different ages, all coming together and actually getting along, not because we all think the same, vote the same, even act the same, but because we find unity as God's image bearers. There's one God that created us all. There's one problem, sin. There's one solution, Jesus' death. There's one hope, the resurrection. So that gives us a unity that's greater than anything that divides us. That the value that God places on every human being, unborn, born, two years old, 90 years old, black, white, and everything in between, it cannot be measured. He declared and he established this when he put a piece of himself in every one of us. And then he showed us just how far this love goes when he gave us his one and his only son to win us back. This is the hope that we find in Jesus. And if human life matters so deeply to God, it ought to matter to us. Let me pray.